You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast, brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier, so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Hey, Kev Kayat here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. My job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now or in about an hour. You're about to hear the recording of me chatting one-to-one with an expert. You're more than welcome to join the next live call. Just zip on over to nonprofitproblemsolver.com to register. Today's Nonprofit Problem Solver, Episode 5 in our summer series of one-to-one conversations, is with Stephen Garton, founder and CEO of Charity Charge, a public benefit corporation in Austin, Texas, that solves one particular nonprofit problem. Access to a credit facility without anyone's personal guarantee or credit check and for zero fees. Talk about enterprising. Let's hear how Stephen came up with this idea and how it's developed over time, and listen out for ways his experience applies to program development and fundraising. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. I'm Kev Kayat, your host. This is the summer series where uh, we replace the expert panels from season one with uh, more intimate uh, one-to-one conversations. And I am thrilled to bits to welcome Stephen Garton, who's the CEO and founder of Charity Charge. And we're going to have a fantastic discussion over the next hour about making social impact through enterprise, which is a slightly different um, take than we normally have on nonprofit problem solver because we're always dealing with problems. And uh, I think what we're going to open up today is a range of opportunities. So welcome, Stephen. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And this is really exciting for me. I appreciate being a part of your community. Uh, I love I love the hat and the t-shirt and everything. Um, tell us uh, a bit about... Oh, I'm trying this out. So normally uh, I don't have any facial hair, but right. you know I'm trying to keep things interesting and exciting with with quarantine. So just trying out some new stuff here. Yeah, we 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 took opposite opposite routes yeah, with I the hair. It. You you let you grow out, and I I shaved mine all off. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> very good. Okay, so um, tell us just briefly what Charity Charge is, so everyone's sort of up to speed with that. And then we'll go back into its history and your thinking on the founding and what you've learned and 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 so on, and what it means to be a B Corp and all those fun things. But tell us firstly what what Charity Charge is. Sure. We're a social enterprise set up as a public benefit corporation. And really what we just found is that um, when you think about financial services and banking products, especially when it comes to credit cards, um, there's really no products specifically designed for nonprofits. And so fundamentally, nonprofit organizations are different. We can get into that later, are very different than for-profit businesses. And so we... Our flagship product is a business credit card that nonprofits use for their organization. So you think of nonprofit organizations, 
Um, likely many people on this call have perhaps donated to an organization, but how do they spend that money? And so by using our business credit card, um, what's really unique about it is we don't charge any fees to nonprofits. We don't run a personal credit check. We don't even require a personal guarantee. We have a unique underwriting model where nonprofits can get access to this business credit card so that they can spend the money that they raise in a safe and responsible way that does not put the organization or their employees at risk. Yeah, that, so that's fantastic because, um, and I should say in full transparency, I have no commercial relationship with Stephen or, or Charity Charge. I, you know, I just believe the, the model is, is uh, genuinely unique and, it, and it's a unique response to a very, very common problem. Um, and so, you know, that again, why nonprofit problem solver, if you've got an issue with your credit card or your bank or your board chair providing personal guarantees and so on and so forth, um, then you really need to look into charity charge. It could be um, a, a really good solution for you. So how did you, how did you discover that this was a problem and, and then find a model to, to meet it? Sure. I mean, to me, you know, looking back on it now, it's really just a classic um, story of startups and entrepreneurship. And back in June of 2016, we launched our consumer credit card, which is a MasterCard. Works just like you know any other credit card that's probably in your wallets. The twist is really simple in that instead of you being rewarded, you reward the nonprofit of your choice with every purchase. So essentially, a credit card where your cash back is donated to the charity of your choice. In the process of rolling out that model, um, we were fortunate just how a little bit of just rolling the dice. I didn't have a budget at the time and I didn't engage with any formal, you know, PR agencies or whatnot. Um, but we were able to, to have Fast Company break the story when we launched. And then the next day, Today Show picked up the story and ran with it. So we were slammed, I mean, from day one with just organizations reaching out to us. And a lot of those early uh, nonprofit organizations, the executive directors and CFOs of those organizations, once I got on the phone with them and they were inquiring about what we did, they you know, basically said, you know, look, we're not interested in this consumer card, but do you have a card that we could actually use for our organization? Um, you know, and I think that um, looking back on it, it's kind of easy for me to say, but there was, um, you know, so we launched in June of 2016 and then there was a day probably towards, I don't know, the latter part of that month. So, you know, maybe 10 days or so later, I recall I had three back-to-back -back calls with different nonprofits. And mm -hmm. from my perspective, you know, I was kind of pitching them on, hey, this is a great way for you to raise extra revenue from your donors. You should tell all of your donors about this card, et cetera. And the first one brought up this concept of the business card for the organization. And she was complaining that, you know, she had a card from a national bank and she was personally guaranteeing it. And she just wished that there was a version of a credit card for their org. And I remember kind of like getting off that call a little frustrated because here I had spent all this time developing this consumer card. And I'm like, no, like that, you know, like I get that you want to talk about that, but I don't, this is what we do. Like we do this consumer thing. So your donors, and then I had a second call immediately after that. And it was basically a repeat. And I'm kind of in my head like, and I'm joking now, kind of saying this respectfully, but kind of right. thinking um, like, no, you dummy, like you don't get it. Like we, we're not, we're not, the business card, that's not what we do. And then right, I had the right. third call, which is back to back and the same thing happened. So I got off the third one and I finally went, 
well, sh- you know, if I've got three people saying this, you know, it's probably something I should look into developing and, and not be dismissive of the feedback that I'm getting. Right. And it's, and it's interesting is that every service organization, many nonprofits obviously provide programming and services. And one thing we've been through uh, on this podcast and something that I advocate very strongly is speaking to the people you serve and asking them what they need to, to start with, because we can dream up what we believe to be the best programming in the world uh, from our perspective. And then we go and almost foist it upon them. And they're like, uh, that's not what I want. And it seems, I mean, I know that's very common also in the private sector, mm-hmm. uh, but, it's, but you are able to pivot very quickly based on that feedback. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't know about very quickly. So well, you could tell. <laughs> I, I was ready to pivot. The hard part is banking is just such an ossified industry that, you know, really is not interested in innovation. And there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, and good reasons. I mean, the number one and the number two thing that a bank cares about is risk. You know, at the end of the day, banks do not want to t- make bets that are risky. Um, by the nature of being a bank, most of them are large, extremely profitable. And so also for them to pursue a new venture, like a partnership with us, they've really got to be able to run the needles and think that it could move, um, could, 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 could move the needle quite a bit for them to want to take a risk on doing some sort of new project. So that's the challenge we've always created. And, um, you know, not to get sidetracked on this point, but there's been a tremendous amount of innovation in the fintech space mm-hmm. um, that has happened over the past four or five years um, fintech quite, being financial technology. That's correct. I've seen some of the questions come through. So yes, yeah, so I'll just, if you don't mind, I'll just say we work with all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, by all means. Uh, yeah. So we, we, we work with um, nonprofits of all sizes. Um, the website is, someone's asking what the website is, charitycharge.com. And um, so that's just charitycharge.com. And, you know, organizations typically as small as $50,000 in revenue um, can apply and can be approved for the card. And um, we're working on um, some additional programs to even have brand new nonprofits that, you know, would only be a day old um, could be a part of this as well. Right. Because I think I, I um, had some feedback from someone I referred to you, came back and said they needed to be in existence for two years, which was a requirement I wasn't familiar with. So I was going on that basis. But, but now you're, you're, you're able to work with startups? Uh, we're moving towards that path. Yeah. And that's likely going to be in the fall. I mean, I'm moving pretty aggressively towards it. So just kind of painting it just even further, which, which I'll um, zoom out after I make this comment to kind of get to the point of kind of the advice because it's, you know, not just all about us, but um, um, the way that we've, you know, figured out uh, basically our lending model and our underwriting with our bank partner um, we really just need to see that an organization has been in existence for two years or more. In other ways, that an organization has two years of financials or typically in nonprofit terms that they would have two years of 990s, you know, their tax statements. Yeah. We can typically look at those and make a quick assessment that this is a, um, um, you know, an organization that's in good standing. And that's how we get past having to force a personal guarantee or a personal credit check, which is what all banks would require of um any other nonprofit leader. Yeah. There's rare exceptions. You know, certainly if it's a 10, 20, $30 million group, they might have bond arrangements or, you know, other sort of things with them. But by and large, you know, all nonprofit leaders are forced to personally guarantee that card. But part of what I've just seen, which is pains me is we have groups that are below that two year mark that every week reach out to us and we haven't been able to help. 
And I know that if, if we can't even help them, then like no one is. No one is. Right. So right. we're re-engineering um, essentially a sister product to what we do to be able to work with those groups um, so that we can start serving, you know, and it's, it's, it's really a catch 22 situation. You know, I've got um, a friend of mine down in Florida um, uh, his name's Ramon Robinson. Awesome guy. I've had him on my podcast, been collaborating with him for a while. He's a, um, extremely, um, socially minded person involved with a lot of nonprofits and he's starting his own foundation and wow. he's of, you know, he has a reasonable amount of capital that he's going to initially seed his foundation with, but it being literally only a week old on by any bank standards, it looks like a super risky organization. So they wouldn't want to give someone in that type of situation any access to lines of credit. Um, they would even be skeptical about beginning a banking relationship with some sort of brand new business. It seems like to a bank that it's a startup, um, but we know the nonprofits operate. We know in this community that they operate differently, but I've just found that there's such a lack of um, um, understanding of, of how and why nonprofits differ um, than for profits um, yeah. by the banking industry in general. So it, you presumably approached a number of different financial institutions, which I'm I'm going to draw a parallel would not be a million miles from a nonprofit who feels they have a, an innovative form of programming or service uh, response to an to an a, a particular problem and are trying to resolve that, but foundations are sort of hands-off or, you know, not so interested. Can you talk a little bit about that, um, that journey of finding your financial partner um, in, and, and what pushback you got and how sort of how you had to refine what you were saying or describe the problem you were solving? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think the best advice that, that, that I can give based on my experience of getting this up and running, um, I mean, especially when we started with the, when we launched the consumer card in June of 2016, we had no customers and no revenue because it was kind of like you had to build it and create all the partnerships before you could launch it to then have cardholders and stuff. So I had a partner, I ultimately partnered with Commerce Bank, which is a publicly traded, uh, you know, $27 billion or so bank and also MasterCard. So I had to go through a process of basically convincing them that, you know, they should work with me. And typically, um, when you think of our business model, which is considered like a co-brand credit card, you people listening in their wallets probably have a Southwest credit card or American Airlines credit card or a Walmart credit card, a Best Buy credit card, an Amazon credit card. About half of the credit card industry are um, what are called co-branded credit cards, where in that mm -hmm. model... Um, typically MasterCard or Visa and a large bank, like it could be commerce, but typically it'd be, um, you know, a Bank of America or a Chase or a City would partner with a massive brand. And again, getting at the fact that, you know, banks don't want to take risk. They're really looking to partner with those massive brands. They don't want to work with at the time, you know, a startup and a kid that just said, Hey, I've got this idea for, you know, credit cards for nonprofits. Um, and I had no experience. So where I think, where I think this gets kind of relatable, I would say are two points. I mean, two or three things. Um, you know, ultimately, um, when I, um, um, had the initial epiphany for this, which came out of the fact that I had had an American express card and I was accumulating all these credit card reward points, it came the end of the year. I tried to redeem, um, 
those points. And I became very frustrated because um, the, the catalog, first of all, like the travel I wanted was blacked out. So I couldn't use my points for that. And then there was, um, you know, I'm like, do I want to get an Olive Garden gift card or a Red Lobster gift card or this pair of binoculars? So after like 45 minutes of trying to figure out what I wanted to get with my points, I logged off American Express site, checked my email at the top of my inbox was a note from a local nonprofit in town here where we're based in Austin, Texas, Hill Country Conservancy, um, who full circle we now work with, which is really exciting. Um, but they were doing an end of year fundraising drive. And that basically um, got me thinking, you know, what if there was a credit card that rewarded nonprofits instead and any nonprofit of any size, regardless of um, it, or rather instead of a credit card that just rewards the individual, which is basically 99.9% of the industry. So the, so the, so, the idea, Jeremy, the idea was how can I transfer my um, credit card points to a nonprofit in the form of real cash? That's right. And where, and the setup that I was just giving that is, I think a lot of people probably listening to this that are thinking about starting social ventures or, um, or, or wish to, um, you know, that's kind of like the epiphany of the idea and where I got it. But what I started doing next is just looking at, I, I gave an example of like the co-brand credit card industry. And, you know, you think of the Southwest airlines and stuff that have credit cards, but I started thinking about at the time, knowing nothing, I realized that there was this business model out there. So I started to think, well, if Southwest can do it and Walmart can do it, and I see this smile about Amazon, we can talk about that too. Thanks, Stephen. Um, if all these other brands have credit cards, well, if they've done it, then I can do it. So basically what I just started doing is looking up on LinkedIn, all the different people that were consultants in that space. I realized that there's kind of a niche industry of credit card consulting. So part of my advice is for people that have some sort of social venture idea. It's extremely rare these days, which is a positive thing for anyone that's interested in doing something innovative, um, that a brand new industry is just created. It's kind of, you know, there's, um, there's a quote out there that, you know, everything, I'm going to butcher it a bit, but, you know, everything that's created is by standing on the shoulders of other giants. And so, you know, what I realized is that, this, this credit card business model is out there. I just need to tweak it. And I just need to speak to the people that um, have expertise in it. So, so that was step one, um, realizing that and then looking for, on LinkedIn, um, Visa and MasterCard had some sites where they are pages on their site where they listed out different consulting shops that they recommended. Um, and those, those are big consultancies that would represent, say, a Southwest Airlines when they want to renegotiate their credit card agreement. You know, Southwest is great at, uh, uh, flying planes safely, but they're not experts in credit cards. So just like any industry, they're going to, you know, bring in external counsel for stuff like that. Um, but my advice there is just one, I mean, I think whatever you're trying to do, it's likely that someone's doing something similar to it, maybe not exactly, and talk to those people and really try to refine and get feedback. Number two, um, I remember distinctly, like early on, on Visa's website, they had a list of 20 co-brand credit card consultants, and I called, the, started dialing, cold calling them, um, and I got, by the time I got through the first 17, they'd either run me off the phone and they realized I had no money to spend, because again, they're, they're used to <laughs> signing like multi-million dollar engagements with huge brands like a Southwest or something to represent them. Um, um, or they just hung up on me. But the, the 18th guy was a gentleman named Hunter Woolley. And I always give this guy a shout out because he was just so helpful to me and didn't ask for a dime and really answered all my questions and was like that. 
initial person that I was able to just share this with, but he had um, had a really um, um, significant career at that point in the credit card industry. So it was like the perfect person for me to be able to get feedback and advice. And then um, the third thing though, that I think is really important and what ultimately what allowed us to be able to launch this. And I think for people that are thinking of how do we get, um, you know, potentially grant money, like you're talking about from foundations or how do you garner interest? Um, uh, I'm kind of fast forwarding the clock, but later, later on, so to speak, like role playing the time, um, as I was just out and I was, had been networking and sharing this concept with a lot of different um, people uh, nationwide um, and also just in the social impact space in Austin, one of um, the women, woman, uh, a woman named Zoe Schlage that ran um, a social impact accelerator in Austin recommended us for this South by Southwest um, um, social entrepreneur like reality TV series that, that IBM was sponsoring and IBM was throwing like tons of money behind this thing. So that was South by Southwest 2015. And um, we got invited to, to be a part of that where they wanted to feature 10 social entrepreneurs. Um, and this came about obviously because I had just been out there socializing, sharing my idea. I think the biggest thing um, people can be afraid of is people stealing their idea. Um, and so because I had been sharing it and talking through with the credit card consultant, getting that side of the industry and then, talking with nonprofit leaders and people in the social impact space, Zoe, um, you know, recommended me for this. And where I'm going with it, which I think is really important is, how do you get credibility and how do you get someone that's not yourself to attach themselves to whatever initiative that you're trying to do? Because ultimately what happened is, um, we were um, a part of this uh, South by Southwest um, showcase, uh, they produced a whole like uh, multi-episode reality TV series where they put us in a house during South by Southwest. IBM threw their brand behind it and had a bunch of events where they kind of like paraded and marched us around. They created a lot of content and a really seminal, you can look on YouTube, there's like a pitch of me called um, A New Way to Start Up. Um, if you just put Charity Charge or A New Way to Start Up or Charity Charge Space IBM in there. And so... At that point, we had nothing, I mean, other than a concept, quite frankly. But what we did have was, at the end of it, the conclusion, IBM, you know, put out a press release and basically said, um, um, Stephen is one of the top five social entrepreneurs in the world, which was like, <laughs> complete bullshit. I mean, it's like, what, what is it? But there's all this like, fluff. it's just out there. So my point is, it wasn't me saying that Charity Charge was great or that this concept was great. I now had this larger brand and this entity of like the combination of South by and IBM. And, um, with that, basically I started sending that around to folks at MasterCard and they started taking the call seriously. And, um, you know, without going into all the details, we were able to get them to take us seriously and want to work with us. So I think that what that really showed me, um, as I'm kind of going on about this is just the need to share your concept with other people, get people on your team, and really um, figure out how you can get that third-party validation. I think that can come in, you know, the forms of of of, uh, uh, of many ways. We can kind of break that down if we want. Yeah, no, that that that's fantastic. Um, and I, again, I can see a, a parallel with some of the way um, nonprofits have tried to uh, start up and develop and 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 try and create a niche. But it's difficult when you're really small to build that 
sort of credibility unless, for example, a, a, a foundation or a program manager in a foundation, you know, takes a shine to the way you're trying to solve that problem. I'm, I'm sure it applies the same way. You know, I mean, I came at it obviously from this social venture model, you know, and I work with a lot of nonprofits, but um, I think it's always challenging whenever you're trying to do something new and innovative. I do think though that, um, you know, I wonder, it's kind of a question for the, I know people are chiming in with, with their comments, which is really cool and questions why this is interactive. You know, one of the things that I've always wondered, like I'll be, to be candid with you, I mean, there's gotta be multiple things and sometimes it's one key thing that drives people. I think that um, my tone much more so now being, you know, four plus years into it um, is different, is much, much more um, uh, 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 community driven and magnanimous. But I do think that there was an aspect, certainly, I mean, we all have an ego in different ways, right? And ego doesn't have to be a bad word, but, you know, I wanted to be the guy that created Charity Charge and like gave this product to the world and all of, you know, in my own way, right? Right. And had a t-shirt and a baseball cap yeah, and all that, right. all that. And so, the branded credit card, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, and everybody calls us up and they're like, how do I get my logo on a card or how do I do this? But um, what I just kind of, my question in the nonprofit community is figuring out, you know, it's kind of both rhetorical and I'm asking if anyone wants to chime in, but um what is it that drives you if you want to start a program or a service at a nonprofit? What I see consistently is a lot of replication of efforts. Um, and there's plenty that are separate. So there's, there's space for both. It's not a, a knock at all. But um, I think there's a lot of programmatic things that can happen in the nonprofit space that can happen simply by um, expanding the programs at a given organization rather than just starting your own. And creating yeah. all that extra, um, 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 I mean, candidly work and expense that would go into it. Yeah. I think, I think it's a, it's a sort of a known, um, uh, factor or feature of the sector that there's a lot of duplication overall. And, uh, one of the sort of uh, litmus tests I, I ask people who are interested in starting up is, are you sure you need another nonprofit? Uh, is there, is there not anyone working in the space? Are you sure that when you start, you want to be running a business rather than running your programming because that's what you'll be doing. And if you're passionate about the programming, maybe you need to find an, uh, you know, some similar organization under which you can house this program so you can do what you're really passionate about. And that's a, that's, you know, a decision that someone typically has to make and whether they can get, you know, generate the revenue for it and, 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 and fulfill what they, what their expectations are. But, you know, the classic, this happens in the for-profit sector too. I mean, how many people, uh, I know at least two people who started cupcake shops because of their passion for baking and stopped after two or three years because they, you know, had basically had to hire people to do all the baking while they did all the businessing and the marketing. And they're like, I don't want to do any of that. I just wanted yeah. to bake at scale and have fun and design stuff. And I don't get to do any of that anymore. So it's no fun for me. And, I, you know, at this, you know, this profit margin, I might as well be doing a nine to five and baking as a hobby. <laughs> so they went, they went back to that. So it is, it is important to frame those expectations. Definitely. Well, and I think also, I mean, we've, you know, I have a smile on my face and I try to whatever it takes, just kind of be strong, have a, a, a good mental outlook on life and be positive. Um, I think that's super important and is just a part of my personality. 
But, uh, you know, I'd be remiss if I just didn't share all the heartache and stress that I've gone through, certainly over the past four years, and really even before that, when I was just in this concept phase. I mean, um, when I started this, or when I, again, I just had the concept for it, because I had no industry experience or capital, I mean, I banged my head against a wall just with the idea for multiple years, um, you know, and to the point where, you know, it was really challenging to kind of have conversations with some of my family members and other people about like what I was doing with my life. Um, a lot like, of oh, like, Steven, not okay. this again. Yeah. You know, and they just kept calling it like my project that I was working on. And, you know, I was just persevering and pushing it through. And, you know, I think obviously that's like a classic take of a lot of, um, people that are trying to start businesses up, but, um, there's tremendous stress, you know, that can come with trying to get something like this, you know, off of the ground. And sometimes like I've wished, like I was just number two, you know, and it wasn't the founder. I was just like the second or third or fourth employee at, you know, um, at, at some sort of thing. So I could still play a role in the, um, kind of inception and, and driving a bit of the vision and stuff. But, um, at the end of the day, you know, you're just handling so much crap, you know, if you're going to be the leader of an organization where it's really not, um, it's certainly not all glitzy and glamorous. I'm super happy with what I'm doing with my life and what we've, what I've created, but it has not been without, um, going through a ton of heartache, um, to get here. And, you know, as we're scaling, like we continue to be presented with new opportunities and challenges that, um, that I have to work through. So there is, I really appreciate that honest uh, description of what it's like to, to lead uh, an organization, particularly from uh, that startup mode through the early stages and the constant reinvention and doing absolutely everything, wearing all the different hats and then trying to build a team. Uh, I'm sure you've got lots of stories of people who've, maybe come and gone, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And then other people who've, who've stuck with you and, and, and then you're, you can't ever really sit still, can you? No, I mean, I, I don't think I can. I mean, I will say on the people front, um, this all just gets so much simpler. If you have great people, it seems like a cliche, but you know, oftentimes cliches are cliches for a reason. So it's just so important to be surrounding yourself with just a plus players. Um, it just makes everything easier. And when I look back on, um, the challenges that we've had over the past, um, you know, four or so years, it's, it's more or less all been solved by getting rid of someone and or replacing them with someone who is an A plus. Well, it's, it was interesting using the grading. I, I, one, one of the things I've, um, heard a lot and people have heard me say is that you can't overinvest in recruitment. You know, you've got to get the right sort of people, but the, the, um, a lot of folks lead with the skills they're trying to, to find. And, uh, there's also others who will lead with sort of culture and mission and, and, and fit in that regards on the, on the grounds that you can, uh, develop skills and develop that experience, but you can't really teach someone's, emotional commitment to the, to the role. What, what's your, what's your take on that? I mean, you know, it's kind of a, I'm joking here, but you'd love to have both, but certainly the latter, I mean, of this, the understanding of the mission and the commitment. Um, I don't think that you can, um, I mean, you can get people excited, but they're going to come into your organization at some level of, 
you know, how committed they are to the cause or just belief in it. And um, what part of what I've realized is it's just not worth my time or effort to try to get them um, beyond whatever level that they're at. So in other words, it's either a fit and it's on and people are like passionate about whatever your company or social venture or nonprofit is doing or they're not. And if they're not, I would just get rid of them and like focus your efforts on finding the people that, that are out there. Because I think that, I mean, one thing's for sure, I would say this to the nonprofit community. Um, there, there is a cause and a nonprofit out there for everyone and more than just one person. So I think you can definitely find people that have experienced a similar challenge or pain or problem that your organization's trying to solve. Um, and that, that really gets at then the heart and soul of just what you're trying to do. Um, and I think that's conveyed through to your, ultimately your customers and your constituents. They can see it. I mean, people are smart. They can tell yeah. if you've got an employee or someone working with you or for you that's fired up about what you're doing and they can tell if that person's just pushing buttons. Right. So all, all these things that we're talking about are, are common, it seems to me, to any sort of business or enterprise, regardless of its tax status as a, as a nonprofit or a for-profit, or uh, in your case, you're a for-profit, but a, but a, but a B Corp. So I want to come back to that in, in, in just a second. But be, before, before that, talk to me about whether you ever considered a non- nonprofit status or where, you know, you, you, you sort of manage a, a, a foot in each camp, but really it's a, in many, in many respects, it's, the boundary I find is is a, mu- a lot more porous or artificial than we pretend we pretend it is. Mm-hmm. But m- maybe you disagree. Let me know what you think. Well, for me, um, there were uh, two or perhaps three key reasons why I decided to go the uh, a social route, but still the for profit route versus the nonprofit route. Number one, um, I fortunately, you know, even early on, did have enough self awareness to know what I didn't know, and it was obvious to me that there would be different pivots and twists and turns. And I felt that forming a nonprofit without us like actually having the product launch and the partnerships with our bank and MasterCard um, and customer feedback, um, if we were to form a nonprofit, it would be hard to pivot. I felt because as the bylaws and just part of the nonprofit, you have to stack it with a board. And I felt that that was a lot of extra work for me also to recruit board members when I, as the founder was still candidly like figuring out the vision and the business model and all of that. So it just candidly seemed like more, more work. And I wasn't interested in more work. I was trying to just, how do I get this model off the ground? And I knew that it was, whether it was a for-profit or nonprofit in legal status, the mission was social in nature. I mean, it was, we've always been designed to do good and, you know, be a, be something positive, help the world, help nonprofits. So to me, that didn't matter. I think the second thing... Before, um, sorry, before you go on there, I just wanted to ask, because sure. I think this is a really important point where people are at the founding stages and s- different states do it differently on how you actually get the nonprofit status, uh, um, whether you do it at the same time or subsequently and, and what the requirements are. Um, but you're right. Recruiting the right sort of board and everything is is a job in itself. It's sort of never ending because you have to manage the board and and succession and 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 so on and so forth. Um, but what I, what I'm hearing you say there is that you were still expecting 
a number of pivots and and moves and 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 you know refocuses and things like that would have you at that point been able to clarify the problem you were solving or were you still trying to figure out that match as well um i think i figured out I think I knew in my heart what the, what the obviously the initial product would be, this consumer card where your reward points go to the charity of your choice. I mean, right. set in an elevator pitch like that. Um, what I experienced though, and you're reminding me is a tremendous amount of what could be called as mentor whiplash. So. <laughs> I've not heard that term, but I'm gonna write that down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's something really powerful and there's two sides of the coin when you're in the early stages of a concept for, you know, what a business nonprofit, whatever, some sort of new product or service. And you take that around to get feedback, but it's important to make sure that you're getting feedback from individuals that would actually benefit or buy or use your service, not just the general public. And I ended up talking to really just a lot of people that, um, were in the Austin startup community that, you know, on paper had had successful exits or maybe were running different like angel or venture capital funds, things of that sort. Mm -hmm. But looking back on it, they just had no experience at all in my specific industry and or wouldn't actually be users of the product. And so, I mean, you know, I remember going around and everyone's like, oh, it shouldn't be a card. Like it needs to be like some sort of platform play, like platforms get funded. Like how can this be a charity platform and do blah, blah, blah. So everyone just comes to you with your own vision. So it's a challenge to push it through. I think that you need to define, you know, really is basically kind of in one sentence on paper, like on a note card, what is your product or service? And then go figure out how you can, um, create the most basic form of that and put it in front of someone and get them to buy it or use it. I mean, ultimately, um, I'm advising a startup this summer that's a part of this, this program at UT called SEAL Student Entrepreneurship Accelerator Launch. And each week, the business, um, you know, I keep saying to them, do you have any customers? Have you sold any product? Have you, you know, and they're, they'll keep coming up with, in my opinion, different excuses of why not. But I'm like, look, this isn't a business unless you're selling your product and people are giving you dollars and you don't even know the only way you're going to prove that out is you put it in front of someone and you say, I mean, basically, do you want to buy this? And, right. and then you get your feedback, but it's not like, what do you think of this idea? Is it a good idea? What feedback do you have? Right. I mean, you can just ask people. And I think a lot of people just don't want to make that ask, but you've got to be willing to put yourself out there. Um, Otherwise, right. Someone said to me uh, recently, if you're um, the number of, of people, you know, nonprofits, uh, fundraisers who call themselves fundraisers, but either don't routinely ask for money, don't like asking for money, have issues with asking for money, sort of like that's sort of in your job title. Yeah, <laughs> you're a fundraiser, and and likely in you know, the same way when you're when you're in a commercial situation, if you're not asking for a sale in some way, you certainly aren't going to get any. Correct. Yep, totally. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a good point um, just to give. I, I think also coming back to the the, um, the question from, that kind of prompted all of this, I think that the the other practical side of going, you know, so, so the first point is that I, I felt it was a lot easier to go. I mean, to be candid, I mean, it could take a lot of money and time to spin up a nonprofit from a legal perspective. You could have an LLC registered in the same day. 
Right. You know, um, and most people though, I would even tell you, you know, since I'm not an attorney, I can give legal advice, right? And I can't, you know, I just get sued for it or something. But you don't need to rush to form. Like, I, I would just create your basic product or service, get some sales. And if you realize there's traction and then go incorporate the business, you don't have to do all this, like, like there's so much comp- company building and checking the boxes that we're put through right. because we're told in school to like sit in a desk, raise our hand, you know, when we have a question, you got to just bend some rules, you know, as you're initially getting going, otherwise you're going to waste so much time and money of yours. But the second point too, for me starting the for-profit was, I mean, to be candid, I was in a spot where I um, had worked for a number of years outside of college. I also had um, (laughs) through like a great grandmother that had passed away and an aunt that had passed away and summer jobs. I mean, I had not an unreasonable amount of savings um, when I started this for a you know, whatever, a 20 something, late 20 something year old. So I put all of that into this. And I also just felt if I'm going to invest all of my hard earned dollars, then let me turn this into an actual business because it's going to take some real capital and I'm, and I'm taking that investment. Um, so that's why I also felt I wanted to be a for-profit because I want to be able to get paid back on, you know, right. at minimum what the dollars that I'm taking the risk to put into this. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of nonprofit founders, uh, obviously operate as the executive directors and at some point are hoping to uh, get a, you know, a part-time or full-time salary eventually. Um, um, but as you said, it's not, it's not something that starts uh, immediately and they have to self-fund for, for quite a long time. Right. Okay. So tell me about the, um, the B Corp and, sure. and what that means and why you pursued it and, and what value that brings. Well, so within your question is kind of a, a, a little bit of a divergence and, it, and, it's, and it's telling, no, because this is going to be educational for you and it's a common question that I get. So we're set up as what's called a PBC. So the legal name of our company is Charity Charge PBC. Instead of Inc. or LLC, um, PBC stands for Public Benefit Corporation. Okay. And so... It gets confused, I mean, literally by everyone. I think it's kind of one of the worst, like, cross-branding mistakes ever. There's a nonprofit entity um, called B Labs that um, is in charge of B corporations and B certifications. Completely separate from that, there's a legal designation available, I think, now at virtually every state level called PBC, which is a public benefit corporation. So we're, we're the latter. We're the PBC. Um, many, many companies are now going that route. And it basically, um, in some respects, from a legal perspective, it is a higher level of standard than B Corps, in my opinion, because you have to amend your um, bylaws and articles of incorporation, and you have a legal fiduciary responsibility to maximize profits to the corporation and maximize um, whatever is your public or societal benefit as stated in your um, amended um, articles of incorporation and bylaws for the corporation. So we went that route. Um, You can do both. So you could be a PBC from a legal perspective and then also be registered by B Corps. Um, which is more of a 
third party certification um, by this external entity. So a lot of groups um, are doing both. Um, you know, to be candid with everyone, you know, I went the PBC route because it was the nature of what our product was doing anyway. It was, it kind of was blending both sides of we are a corporation, but we're trying to maximize public good and society to charities, which is what our stated uh, mission is. Um, and, and, and you check the box and there's really no extra costs. If you want to be a B Corp, it's a very onerous process. Um, I haven't done it, but I, I have a bunch of friends that run. Uh, oh, I th sorry. I thought you had done right. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, it's something that I'm definitely interested, you know, in doing for charity charge, but a lot of people get those two mixed up. So. Okay. So PBC then from a, as a, um, is that something then you would, you could also then apply to, uh, to, to be a nonprofit or you would, um, retain that as a for-profit, but you have some social benefit requirements. It would not apply if you were a nonprofit. So it's, it's, I mean, this is a, a bit misleading, but it's essentially like a hybrid between a for-profit and a nonprofit from a legal designation. It's but the it's most designed, it hybrid that social, you could get. Right. It seems designed for social entrepreneurs where, uh, or, or social, social impact organizations that want to be able to retain and distribute profits in a way that a nonprofit cannot. That's correct. And I think also where it's really powerful is as your organization scales and if you have shareholders, you do not have to bend at every um, um, suggestion that they have about doing some sort of deal or partnership or going in some sort of strategy to solely um, make money. You can look up, there's article, I mean, so many crazy stories about this, but um, look, the legal definition of a corporation is to maximize profit for shareholders. So what happens is you oftentimes have companies that raise a significant amount of capital from angel investors or venture capital groups or other sources of capital. The founding team would like to do something that might be in a societal interest, but not necessarily to maximize the profit. And those shareholders can veto it and they could sue the CEO. They could oust the CEO. Like every freaking decision that you make, if you're running a true corporation is to maximize profits. You cannot be concerned at all. So making donations to charity, um, uh, all, all sorts of things can be questionable. And ultimately, there's been a lot of leaders of companies that have been, you know, thrown out over disagreements um, about about. But with, but with a PBC, so you have a you have a board that you manage as well. I don't have to because I'm the sole board member. Because <laughs> oh, I'm okay, so, so, gotcha. Okay. So fortunately, um, I didn't have to raise outside capital. If I had, I would have a board of you know investors, venture capitalists, people like that. Um, so, you know, I've been able to kind of get this thing up and running and, and write the ship and navigate it without having that external input. But I'm just saying that if you're um, going to be raising external capital and your goal of your corporation is to be a social enterprise, that that's in conflict if you're not a PVC because you go and raise capital and if you're trying to do anything that's sort of socially related, then 
that's really in direct conflict and your investors will be able to have certain recourse and cause to be able to essentially remove you as the founder of the company. Potentially. I mean, I'm just painting a very extreme or drastic picture, but. Right. But, it, but, but you, but you have as a PBC, the ability to back off that sort of full tilt profit maximization because you're balancing some sort of public benefit as stated in your articles of incorporation. That's correct. And if I raised external capital and had a board, you know, investors, let's say that we're trying to get some sort of return off of what we're doing economically, I would have more protections in place versus, um, versus a non PBC. Right. And you would sort of clarify in your strategic documents and so on about how you balance profit and your public benefit, assuming that they are in some sort of conflict and not, not, not uh, um, complementing each other. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, I, I think we're, I'm getting into the kind of worst case scenario and just role playing different things. I think that, you know, the key would just be getting investors or people involved that understand the vision and, what their capital is going to be used for so to, to kind of just set expectations from the get-go. So hopefully you're not making those sort of decisions um, after the fact. Right. But in an ideal situation, you want, you want your revenue generated from the problem that you're solving, right? So, so that in, in your case, this problem that you're solving, and you might put this in slightly different words, but the way I see it is that, the, the, the problem you're solving is getting a um, credit facility for nonprofits without the board chair or any of the staff uh, providing a personal guarantee. Correct. Right. And which is to me like the, you know, like such a no brainer, <laughs> like why would you not do this? I mean, you don't, you also do it without, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, carrying additional costs. So if I'm a nonprofit and I have a banking relationship with a local bank and they support me, maybe they donate some money and so on and so forth, I don't have to use their credit card and do my personal guarantee in this normal way. I can go to charity charge. It doesn't cost me anything and I get those benefits. That's absolutely right. Yep, totally. And where we're just getting off, I think a little bit off point is that there's the, the vast majority of businesses that are out there are not do not have some sort of social model, right? And so we naturally have this, and many do, it's baked into your business model. It's kind of just what you do. The byproduct is that it's helping nonprofits or society, et cetera. And I, right. think, I think the better way to explain it would be that because social impact is kind of all the rage, like every company, large and small, is trying to figure out programs to integrate into their existing business, like, I'm just making it up, but maybe you own a, a, uh, a, 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 um, you know, a, a plumbing business that you've had for 20 years and then, and you're set up as a corporation and all of a sudden you're thinking that, you know what, for every time we fix a toilet, like we're going to donate a toilet to a developing country. Like that would be really cool. That would probably like, you know, help you, you know, just give back and be a part of like your business model. But if there were owners of that plumbing company that had already been set up, they might say to the CEO, you're crazy. We're not doing that. 
Do you know how much it's going to cost us to donate a toilet every time that we repair? Like we're a business. We're here to make money. Take it away. And then they get into a fight with the CEO because he wants to be social related. And then they're like, fine, you're fired. You're not the CEO. So I think that I'm just, I think the extremes are when you have all of these businesses that at their root, at their DNA, their product or service has no social benefit, but they're trying to bolt it on or create it. And I think that's where you could get some conflict there. Right. And at the other extreme, we know that there are nonprofits who rely solely on grants to provide a service which is free of charge to those that they serve. And that's a perhaps an idealized model, but it's also uh, comes with challenges in terms of sustainability because you have to find that money every year without any commercial exchange of value. You know, you, it is literally a, a form of redistribution uh, in, in, through, a, through a structure of grants, um, which makes it, um, you know, you need to find that money year after year after year. Yes, 100%. Um, and I mean, I think that's well said as well. I'm, I'm, I was trying, it was just sort of like steering us to this idea that um, the, this alignment between your purpose and the impact you're trying to make as a way of generating revenue is a way of meeting some social impact goals without um, um, sacrificing the, the, a, a revenue generating model. In other words, you can provide a, a paid for service or a service that generates money. And it's, again, I know you, you, you know, there's hybrids potential as well, where, um, you know, if you have something like, you know, famously the Girl Scouts being the most famous where, you know, they, they, they're, they're obviously a nonprofit that can generate grants and, uh, and, and support in, in all sorts of ways, but also then provide a commercial product through the cookie sales that we all know and love at, at that particular time each year. Uh, and so there's, there is ways of doing, um, uh, meeting social problems that can be done through enterprise rather than treating them as it's either a nonprofit or it's a for-profit. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I think that's been, the huge rise of just all of this movement towards social enterprise. I mean, um, it really wasn't something that was talked about until, at least for me, until I was, you know, uh, the later point of college, I graduated in 2008, you know, but prior to that, the concept of this was just not something that I grew up around. Yeah. Well, I, 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 what's interesting to me is the, Experience and I, I've done startup and I've done I've done entrepreneur stuff in large public sector organizations and starting new new things and this notion of startup and problem solving and matching problems to need and and getting the revenue and the partnerships and the support behind it are, are common across all these different uh, versions or sectors or tax <laughs> statuses and so on. It's really the same sort of start. Uh, and and a same sort of model of evolution, uh, regardless of whether you um, sell and and work on a transactional basis or whether you are um, you, trying to secure grants to provide uh, a service in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, I think that you know I'd kind of said this before, but that all innovation is happening by staying on the shoulders of other giants. I really need to figure out who I need to credit that quote because I know I didn't come up with it. It's, but, um, uh, it's it's actually um, what's what's his name the um, 
it's not Newton, but uh, Newton. It, yeah, it is Newton. Is it Newton. Okay, Isaac Newton. Yeah. So we're just we're just continuing to evolve. You know, some things. You know, when you zoom out, not a lot has changed. I mean, in in business and in life and in industries and in other ways, you know, people are finding innovation. I just think it's key that you know, at the end of the day, that people are pursuing things that they believe in and that they're ultimately passionate about, so that they can continue to have the fortitude to succeed, whether you go the, you know, for-profit route or the PBC route or the nonprofit route. And it, it just lays, it just opens up the options. And as we, we started, we stated earlier, uh, this common notion of way too many nonprofits and duplication and so on. Um, and whether you should start yet another nonprofit, maybe the question is, uh, what, it, what is the right sort of business model and and structure to meet the problem that you are trying to solve. And may, maybe it's not a nonprofit, but it's still a social impact organization uh, with, a, with a slightly different structure. I think that's fair. And I, I hope that some of the things that I've shared today let people know that um, you can kind of meet in the middle. I think my closing point where I am opinionated about this is that, look, you can always reverse. It's easier to start out though as a like an LLC, which is really basic, and then convert that or turn that into a nonprofit versus being a nonprofit and turning it into a for-profit. So my advice to people is just get forget the structure. That, in my opinion, should have no bearing. It should be about are you providing a valuable product or service that people are willing to pay for or support and use. Once you've proven that out, then, I mean, I think the company building or the nonprofit building of like checking the boxes of are we a nonprofit or LLC um, can happen, but you could easily start without doing that and or just become an LLC. So you have some basic, you know, um, um, protections like insulating yourself individually from getting sued or things like that. Mm -hmm. And then you can convert it to a nonprofit a week later, a month later, a year later. You don't have to get it perfect out of the gate. I just think it's about focusing on, do you actually have something um, that is sustainable and valuable to others? Right. And, that, and as you said, that people are going to respond to. Uh, and I think that that is a, is a- Shout out to Stephen, by the way. Sorry. A, a, a good question, a good, a good way maybe of thinking about whether you continue in the for-profit or you go to the nonprofit is where you're going to get your significant investment. You know, can you generate a financial return for folks or is it, um, is that perhaps questionable and you, and you want to go down a, a foundation or corporate sponsorship route maybe? I mean, that's true. I would just add though also though that a huge aspect of nonprofits is earned revenue as well. So, I mean, you could obviously be a, a nonprofit and not have any external, um, you know, grants or, or donation sponsorships and just generate it. So, there's a lot of options out there. Um, and typically, you know, you're trying to find a hybrid or, or multiple streams of different sources of revenue. Right. That's excellent. Okay. I'm going to bring this to a close then, Stephen. We've had a fantastic hour as I anticipated, covered a lot of ground. Thanks for responding to the questions uh, in, in, in real time uh, as we went. Um, this has been Nonprofit Problem Solver Summer Series number five. Next week, I'm going to be joined by uh, social media digital marketing savant Roxanne Ray to look at what we would do if we spent a thousand dollars on Facebook ads. So uh, tune in next week, Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, and we will see you then. Thanks to Stephen Garten from Charity Charge.
Thanks to you all. This was a ton of fun, Kev. So I appreciate it. And this is really exciting what you're doing, Kev. So I'm a, I'm a big fan and big supporter of this. So no, great stuff. Thank you. Thank you, Kev. No, no, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast. A big thank you to my guest, Stephen Garton, who you can contact at stephen at charitycharge.com. That's Stephen with a P-H. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You're also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner, where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.